We've been studying the tragic and troubled life of David in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, passage by passage for five weeks. Why do we study the sins and fall of David or so-called the man after God's heart? You know, there is a saying that wise men learn from his own mistake, and wiser men learn from others' mistake. So through David's life, let us become wiser and more faithful to God. Amen? So, so far we, we saw David committing adultery, and then cost of his cover-up, and God's rescue through the prophet Nathan, and David's song of repentance in Psalm 51 last week. Today, we will see actually, we will see actual David's acts after Nathan confronted him, and then he confessed his sin. And I call it recovery with a grace. Recovery with a grace. And I pray that our study of today's passage, second half of 2 Samuel 12, will deepen our understanding of the grace of God. You know, grace of God is not just a forgiveness, but it's a forgiveness that fortifies and strengthens our trust and surrender in God's love. Grace of God is not just pardon. It's actually power. I just want you to know God's grace is a power. Grace not only reconciles us to God, but also recovers our path to God's calling and purpose. You know, St. Augustine once said this, For grace is a given not because we have done good works, but in order that we may be able to do them. So grace of God actually empowers us, energizes us, to do the good work. You know, sometimes we Christians, we misunderstand the Paul, Paul's you know, theology as a work versus you know, grace. Paul never negates importance of a good works. We are saved not by good works, but we are saved for good works. Amen? So grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning, earning God's favor through the good works. These days, a lot of people are going through some uh, tough you know, time uh, in many ways, but especially mentally. And uh, uh, there's a pastor named Rick Warren, a founding pastor, recently retired from his church, uh, Satterbeck Community Church in Southern California. Rick Warren and Kay Warren, they have three children, and they lost their youngest son, Matthew, over suicide after battling with a depression and mental illness. And this is what Rick Warren said. He said, what gives me the most hope every day is God's grace. Knowing what his grace is going to give me strength for whatever I face. Knowing that nothing is a surprise to God. Rick Warren said, grace comes from God, not just any God, but God who is perfect and nothing can surprise God. So grace of a sovereign God gives us the strength to recover. So in today's uh, message and today's you know, passage, I want us to learn the three strengths 
of a recovery that God's grace gives us. The first one is the grace to move on, strength to grace to move on. For that, let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 15 to 23, and the let's read it responsibly. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child of Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the night lying on sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. The David's servant were afraid to tell him the child was dead. For they thought while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when he spoke to him. How can he now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperately. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied, he's dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, thrown lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. His attendant asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he's dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back, uh, bring him back again? I will go to him but he will not return to me. There's so much to reflect here, so much. So let me give you a warning and outline. Half of today's sermon is a part one here, okay? We have a three main points, and uh, the first point, first main point is half of the sermon. Here, we're going to reflect the three things. The first thing is that suffering of an innocent. Look at the verse 15. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child. This is a hard for many, especially modern people, to accept. Does God really strike or make an innocent suffer? Sadly, innocent often suffer because of sin of guilt. That's what the collateral damages in Ukraine, Syria, and what dictatorship in Venezuela and El Salvador caused. Children pay price of a sinful parents, according to the Bible. So if you look at the Exodus chapter 30, uh, verse 4 said this, the Lord was passing in front of David, proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness and rebellion sin, yet he does not live guilty unpunished. He punished the children and their children for the sin of our adult, our parents to the third and fourth generation. Lord wants to bless us for a thousand generations, but our sin causes suffering to next three or four generations. That's the reality of a life, and that's the reality of sin. For instance, according to WebMD, did you know that the uh, sexually transmitted disease have been rising 
steadily in the last seven years, but recently it spiked. The new 2020 STD surveillance report released just this April 12th found that at the end of 2020, cases of gonorrhea and syphilis rose 10% and 7% respectively compared to 2019. And the highest STD spike happened was so-called congenital syphilis. Congenital syphilis, that is syphilis among newborns. I didn't know babies could have a syphilis because they are not sexually active. Do you know how babies get STD or syphilis? Through their parents, through their parents. Health experts are concerned about the rise of STD during the pandemic. And STD, like a scene, affect the health of future generations. Today, the expression, the child that the Uriah's wife had born to David, tells us the cause of his sickness was the adultery of a David. That's why Bathsheba was still referred to as a Uriah's wife, not David's wife. Just, you know, last passage, we saw David and Uriah got married in chapter 11. But when the child was conceived, Bathsheba was still Uriah's wife. In short, this child was a product and result and victim of the adultery. Once again, we need to remember that our lives are not isolated, but all interconnected. You know, we are not islands. We are landlocked. Do you know that? We affect each other. We can either bless each other or we will break each other. We will doom each other. The interesting part in this story that God did not take the life of a child right away, but after seven days. Why gradual sickness and death? That's the second reflection point, which is a serious, sharp reflection. Serious, sharp reflection. The sickness and death of child was far more tragic and painful to David and Bathsheba than it was for the child himself. You know, as I said before, God covered this child with his mercy, that he didn't have to live a, you know, his life, the rest of his life, as an illegitimate child and the product of a secret adultery that caused the death of a husband of a, you know, his mother, Uriah. His premature death actually spared him from lifelong shame. This child suffered little, and suffered temporarily, but at the end he went to God and his eternal comfort. Here we must see the effects of his sickness and death on David and Bathsheba. Because David and Bathsheba is their sin that caused the suffering of this innocent. David must have felt really, really bad and painful and that was God's intention. While God forgave David, God wanted David to know. When sin is forgiven, still price is paid. Grace is free, but not cheap. In the fact that God offered the grace free, we think it's kind of cheap. Christians are notorious for taking God's grace of forgiveness for granted. Because we equate the free stuff with the cheap stuff. So I brought the point. You know, this kind of pen? How many of a pen do you have? You know? This is a cheap pen. 
you know. Whereas, well, you don't know this. This is a, you know, what is a water, you know, this is a $200 pen. You know? People don't give this kind of pen free. This is free. Nobody gives expensive stuff free. So we think God is like that too. But you know what? God's grace, especially forgiveness, is free but costly. And that's what God wanted David to reflect through the gradual sickness and the eventual death of his son. David must realize that my sin cost the life of my son. You know, John Stott, in his book, Cross of Christ, once said this, before we, can, we begin to see cross as something done for us, we need to see cross something done by us. My sin led Christ to the cross. Christ was pained by my sin. There is an interesting, uh, insightful book published last year. Paul Bloom, a professor of psychology, uh, formerly at Yale and now at University of Toronto, wrote a book titled The Sweet Spot. There, he claimed the passive power of a pain, pleasure of a suffering. So, do we have a quote? The suffering is anything that causes you pain, anxiety, or discomfort. Sort of things that you would normally avoid. A lot of suffering is unsurprisingly bad for you. Unchosen suffering is awful. But chosen suffering, the sort of suffering we seek out, can be a source of a pleasure. Think of activities like going to a horror movie, sad movie, hot bath, saunas, spicy food, roller coaster, etc. Chosen suffering is a part and parcel of a meaningful life. If you don't have any chosen suffering in your life, you are probably not living the best life you could. You know, pain can be good because pain can liberate you from self. 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 Sometimes it's a noisy thing that does not stop, like a broken you know, alarm clock. You know, self sometimes can be uh, somebody that we are sick of being with. You know, you can be sick of what's going on in your head, the constant you know, voice about the doubt, obsession about the past, worries about the future. Self can be annoying and exhausting. And that's the you know, struggle a lot of people with have a mental health. You know, one thing pain does to self, it obliterates all of that. It, pain captures your attention and your focus from self. When you're in pain, you don't think about yourself. You're just in pain. Paul Bloom said, chosen pain or, quote, Benign masochism can liberate us from anxiety and annoyance of a self. In other words, pain can give you escape from self. And listen to me carefully. Cross of Christ is a God's chosen pain to save us from our sin and ourself. Cross of Christ is a God's chosen pain to save us from our sin and ourself. 
pain of Christ on the cross liberates me from my self-obsession and self-absorption. You know, in the light of the pain of the cross of Christ, all my self-will you know, actually withers and all my pain comes down. Let me illustrate that. Ten years ago, about ten years ago, I had a heart failure, and I, was, uh, I went to the emergency room. They took me to uh, UT Southwestern uh, cardiac ICU. And they did a catheterization twice from the you know, side here, uh, from bottom, and the, even through the neck. And then they found out nothing was blocked. And then they found, so they, they concluded it was a heart infection, myocarditis. Problem was uh, that at the night of uh, the first night, when my heart went through all this uh, uh, intense examination, my heart was inflamed and angry. It was on fire. I was in pain. So they gave me morphine, but it's still painful. So I said, I'm in still pain. So finally, anesthesiologist came. And uh, he asked me, scale 1 to 10, what's your pain level? I just wanted to punch him. I said, 13, 14. And then, you know, they increased the dose and then, you know, so forth. And, you know, throughout the, you know, the horrible night, you know what helped me, along with the morphine at the end? Holy Spirit flashed the thought in my heart. That is, Paul, you are here in ICU, surrounded by all these doctors and nurses and your wife holding your hand. And yet, still you're complaining about pain. Do you know Christ was crucified alone, naked, and no one was helping him and cursing him? You know, when I had a heart pain, I thought I was a very uh, pain-tolerant person, but heart pain was a totally different animal because... Do you see a movie when there is a bomb exploded? What happened? There is a force field created, right? Bomb created. When you have a heart pain, every heartbeat, there is a force field. There's an implosion in your heart. It just takes your, you know, a, a breath away. And the, but when I thought about the Christ's suffering on the cross, all of a sudden, I just, you know, said my heart pain is nothing compared to his heart pain. So every, you know, that implosion, the heartbeat, I was saying, I'm moaning, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus. They think, you know, I was, you know, cursing something. But I was actually, that really helped me compared to Christ's excruciating pain for me. There's nothing. Every time you and I come to major pain and shame, we need to go to Calvary. We need to see Christ and his pain and suffering for us. Now, let's see what David did. Verse 16, David pleaded with God for the child. When David received the announcement of God's judgment, David didn't take it passively or fatalistically. David cried out to God in repentance, asked for his grace and mercy. So he fasted and spent the night lying down in the sackcloth on the ground. The elders of a household stood beside him to get him up from the ground and refused, and he would not eat any food with them. David prayed desperately and painfully. 
He fasted seven days, all day, all night, without food. He was praying so painfully that his servants were afraid to inform him when child died. After such serious, sharp reflection, you know, David was able to move on with God's grace. So when he found out the child was die, child, child died, he calmly responded with a reverence and hope. Verse 20 says, David got up from the ground, he washed, put a lotion, changed his clothes, and then he went to the house of the Lord and worshipped it. You know, when we, we must learn something that when we pray to God about something with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our strength, at the end, we can rest in God, no matter what answer God gives us. When you pour out to God, interesting thing is that even though sometimes we don't get what we wanted, but there is a peace coming from God, you know? The surrender comes after you exhausted everything in your soul. So David's servant asked David, how could he compose himself like this? By the way, you know, David's servant said, you are fun, you know, king, you are, you are, you are very strange because you, in a way, mourn before the funeral. And then when child died, instead of mourning, now you kind of, you know, compose yourself. You kind of did a reversal order of a mourning or, you know, the death. And this is a David's amazing answer. Look at the verse 22. He answered, while child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he's dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I'll go to him. I will go to him. He will not return to me. David was confident that he would meet his son one day in heaven. What does that mean? David believed in resurrection. Did you know that a resurrection is not just a New Testament idea, but an Old Testament also talks about resurrection? You know, check it out, uh, scale 37, the vision of uh, dry bones. And the Isaiah 6, well, there's so many verses. Even Father Abraham believed in the resurrection. Look at the Hebrews 11. It said, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as sacrifice. And how could Isaac, he could sacrifice Isaac, even though God gave a promise about Isaac? Look at the verse 19. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. So in the manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Abraham could obey God and almost sacrifice Isaac because he believed God who made the miracle child Isaac also couldn't bring him back from the dead. So here is the third final reflection of hope. That is a serene surrender and the rest in God's resurrection. What David confessed about the death of his child today, that one day I will go and meet him, do you know it comforted so many Christian parents who lost their children in, in history? You know, I've been to funeral of children, and I hear people say to the grieving parents, you know, they are with God. You know, time will heal. You know, time not necessarily heals. Some wounds, time cannot heal completely or even well. 
parents, when they bury children, they bury children in their heart. And they never forget about them. Only thing will give them true strength to move on is the hope of resurrection. Actually, resurrection gives us not just strength to move on, but strength to march on because we want to live now our life worthy of their memory. Yes, yes. So let me ask you, do you believe in resurrection? Do you have a hope of resurrection to move on no matter what? Hope of resurrection is stronger than any healing of the time. And grace gives us this strength to move on. Very interesting point here is this. You know, David, when he was under influence, is a greedy, you know, lust. He didn't care about suffering of an innocent like Uriah or even his soldiers. But now under the influence of God's grace, he feels a pain of a suffering. And that pain made him to really come close to God. Amen? Now, let's look at the second strength of a grace for recovery. That is verse 24 and 25, and let me read. Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba, and he went to her and made a love to her. She gave her birth to a son. They named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through the Nathan the prophet to name him Jedediah. You know, this expression, the statement, then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba, is amazing because David and Bathsheba just lost their first child. You know, tragically and painfully. Do you know some couples, they fall apart after the death of their children? I've seen that. David and Bathsheba had more reason to fall apart than any couple. So imagine they are contemporary couples and they come to grief, you know, what is that, the grief counseling. And the counselor said, tell me why you're grieving. And then ask, you know, you know uh, lady, you go first. And the Bathsheba probably say, I lost my first child. Counselor said, how did you lose your first child? Well, it's because of the sin of his father. What did he do? Well, he killed my first husband and tried to cover it up. Counsel said, is that true? And David said, well, she forgot to mention how the whole thing began. She took the bath while I was uh, walking around on my penthouse. And Bathsheba interrupted. That was a siesta time. Everyone takes a nap, but you are peeping at me. Well, David, you know, replied, when I called you, you didn't, you know, object. Bathsheba, you're king. You're boss over my husband. How can I refuse you? David said, come on. It was a consensual. David and Bathsheba could play the game of blame and shame worse than anybody. You know, that's what a lot of couples do when they're in pain. Today, David did not complain or accuse Bathsheba. But what did he do? He comforted her. That's amazing. He comforted her. I bet the verb, you know, comforted includes many things like uh, apology, remorse, owning of his sin, sharing of God's forgiveness, and hope of resurrection. 
By the way, Bible says David comforted his wife, comma, Bathsheba. This is the first time Bathsheba was called wife of David. Up to now, she was always referred as Uriah's wife. What's the change? With the David's confession and repentance and death of their first child, Bathsheba was finally recognized as a wife of David before God. And the David went to her and made a love to her. This means the second strength that God gave us, the strength to make up. They are reconciled. They have forgiven each other. And they are in love for each other. They are in love again for each other. And she gave a birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. You know, the name Solomon came Shalom. So it's basically peace child. This is our peace child. This peace child came from God's grace. When they named their child with the gratitude and the memory of God's you know, grace and forgiveness, you know what? God was so elated that God, you know, so happy. What did he do? do? God loved him. Verse 24 said, God loved him. And because God loved him, he sent a word through Nathan and the prophet, Nathan the prophet named him Jedediah. You know, God loved Solomon twice, twice, you know, repeated twice. God was elated. When David and Bathsheba forgave each other, reconciled, and then, you know, braced the God's grace of forgiveness to move on. Anytime we are reconciled to each other, forgive each other, do you know God rejoices? Amen. Our God is a God of reconciliation. The name Jedediah is a Hebrew word, the two-compound word. God actually made this word. It's actually Yedidiah. Yedi, Yedi Yahweh will be full. It's a yedid, means a beloved. Yahweh, you know, is a God. Beloved of God. And the interesting thing is that this son born of a reconciled couple, the son of a second chance, later became a successor of a David throne. Amen? A commentator said this, Remarkably, it is this son, son born out of marriage that began in adultery, that will be heir to David's throne. God chose this son among David's many sons to be heir to the throne and ancestor of a Messiah to demonstrate the truth that God forgives repentant sinners. How was it possible for Bathsheba to give such a name to a child born out of the turbulent and terrible event that led to, led to this? She must have believed the Lord really had to throw David's sin along with her sin. So recovery truth number two is that God gives us strength to make up. Eugene O'Neill, an American playwright, once said this, we are all born broken. We are all born broken. And we live mending. We basically live rest of our life, broken life, mending. And the, how do we mend? Grace of God is the glue. We mend each other's life with the grace of God. Every relationship, you know, faces a storm which creates a whirlwind of a confusion. It throws our confidence and goodwill into complete chaos. Where do you find the refuge and safety when the relational spiritual tornado comes near you? It is always forgiveness of God where we find unconditional eternal safety. The forgiveness God is a foundation of all human forgiveness. Amen? 
I have a one more testimony, or it's more like a confession. You know, two weeks ago, I didn't preach on Sunday. Dr. David Harridge was a guest speaker. And those Sundays, those weekends, Saturday, I'm, that's my true sabbatical, Sabbath. So I always feel guilty about my wife and even my children that are, you know, unlike a regular family, Saturday is no fun for them, you know. I'm not around them, you know. Actually, I ask them to tiptoe around me because I'm all about the Sunday. So that Saturday, I said, all right, I'm going to really, you know, uh, entertain them or, you know. So uh, I took them to, uh, what is that, the AT&T Discovery Dis- District in downtown. And especially my youngest daughter, you know, she showed me the, all her friends in the, some kind of, uh, you know, exotic countries of, you know, European, you know, whatever places. So at least this is the least I can do. So I took them uh, AT&T uh, Discovery District, and uh, you know there was an eatery. We bought a bunch of different food, overpriced. Eh. You know, but anyway, I felt good. And then on the way back, I said, "Okay, I'm going to cook a you know a seafood pasta for for us." So we went to a Central Market to buy a fresh seafood. On the way from Koi to Central uh, Market parking lot. There is a four-way stop sign, and the main entrance way is a, a double, a two-lane. Two uh, right side, right, right turn. There is a line, so you cannot turn. You have to stop and turn right. Left side, left lane. There is no no line, so you can just go. But the cross section, there is a. a you have to stop. I saw before, people just driving. In the if you're in the left lane, you're going straight. So when I get there, there's another car get there a little earlier than I, but I thought I have a right away. I drove. And then he kind of uh, upset the guy. So he followed me. And then, you know, he was saying, there, you, you know, all that, and said, sir, I have a right away. Check, check your DMB, whatever. You know, go Google, you know. At the moment, my dear wife, ultimate backseat driver, said, you're wrong, honey. Sir, I'm sorry, my husband is wrong, and I just took the all day to entertain you, and you're siding with this stranger in front of me. Just a split of a second, my day was ruined. I was raw inside. I was so raw. And then, guess, you know, don't ask me about the seafood pasta. It was, you know, I was, what is this? For about an hour, I was in seriously complete misery. And guess what I realized at the end? You know the real problem was? You know, the problem that I had is not my wife. It's about me. I, I was so, I had a rude awakening about the fragility of my ego. Just over a little thing. I totally lost you know, peace and control of my life, my mind. I couldn't believe that's what I am. How, have, you, have you been disappointed at yourself? You know, forgiving other people is easy. How do you forgive yourself? That's the hard part, right? Once again, cross of Christ. That helped me. 
Christ died for me because he loved me. Yes, I'm pathetic, but he sees me precious. So once I forgave myself, yeah, I can forgive that horrible second, drive, second backseat driver. And then, you know, we could eat the dinner together. Yeah. Martin Lloyd, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said this, whenever I see myself before God and realize something about, something about what my blessed Lord has done for me at Calvary, I'm ready to forgive anybody, anything. I cannot withhold it. I do not even want to withhold it. Forgiveness, you know, breaks the bitter chains of a pride and self-pity and vengeance, which sometimes leads to despair and the alienation and the loss of joy. You know, when I become bitter or unforgiving toward other people, actually, you know, what I'm doing is I'm assuming the sins of other people to me are more serious than my sin against God. And the cross of Christ corrects and transforms my perspective right there. Through the cross, I realize that no sin committed against me will be ever serious as my innumerable sins that I've committed against God. So when I find out how much God has forgiven me, that's how I can forgive other people. And the Apostle Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation, old is gone, everything is new. And then verse 18, they're very critical. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us a ministry of a reconciliation. Do you know what it means to be a new creation? That means we are not only reconciled to God, we are not only forgiven, we also called to be called to forgive other people. This is why I say Christian marriage. What is the foundation of a Christian marriage? Cross of Christ. If you don't believe in forgiveness of Christ, how can you forgive each other? Forgiveness of Christ is a foundation of all Christian relationships, especially in marriage relationships. And this is why we really ask people, are you committed to Christ before you commit to each other? If you are not committed to Christ, you don't really know the Christ's love for you. How dare you that you can love other people? We cannot even love ourselves. So let me ask you, are you a forgiver? You know, for me, to be a Christian is not only forgiven, but also forgiver. Are we a forgiver? Let me move to the conclusion and the final you know, strength of a graceful recovery. That's verse 26 to 35. Meanwhile, Joab, Joab fought against the rabbi of Ammonite and captured the royal citadel. Joab then sent a messenger to David saying that I have fought against the rabbi and taken his water supply. Now muster the rest of the troops and besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise, I'll take the city and it will be named after me. So David mustered the entire army and went to Rabbah and attacked and captured it. David took the crown from the kings, their king's head, and it was placed on his own head. He weighed a talent of gold. It was set with precious stones. David took a great quantity of plunder from the city and brought out the people who were there and consigning them to labor with the saws, with iron picks and axles. He made them to work at the brick making. David did all this to Ammonite towns. 
Then he and entire army returned to the Jerusalem. In short, David got the victory and reputation and glory that he didn't deserve. It was actually Joab who completed the war against the Ammonites and Syrians. And the war against the Ammonites and Syrians started in chapter 10. And during this, you know, chapter 10 to chapter 12, the David scene happened. So today's story is sort of conclusion of a whole saga. So when David was, I mean, when Joab was on the verge of a victory, he asked his king David to come and claim the victory. Probably Joab knew the political danger of taking too much credit before king. You know, because the last time, what happened? When David, people praised David for, you know, so many his victory. King Saul changed his mind about David. So Joab said, hey, I don't want to be in the same shoes. Just so you, you get the credit that I, I fought for it. And so David came back to battlefield. He had to return to the front line and resume his duty as a king. And that's very important. Because do you remember how the whole set saga began in the first, second Samuel chapter 11, verse 1? Do we have a second Samuel chapter 11, verse 1? In the spring at the time when the kings go off to the war, David sent to Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israel the army. They destroyed the Ammonite and besieged the robber, but David remained in Jerusalem. Whole thing started because David wasn't faithful to his call of a duty as a king. And now, with a forgiven by God, he returned to his duty and he becoming a king again. You know, one thing I remember, I hope you to remember, out of our five-week you know, message about the David's you know, sin and fall, is this. Do you guys remember? The safe, 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 safe place in spiritual life is a front line, not the fortress of a safety and comfort. Spiritually speaking, comfortable place is not a good place. Place that you struggle to love other people and pray for the people, that's a good place spiritually. You know, last uh, Friday we had a joint house church and uh, someone gave a good icebreaker question because it was a joint house church of uh, uh, young, medium, and old. He said, everybody tells your age and then tell us what you like to see 10 years from now. So when he came to me, and then, oh, yeah, before he came to me, somebody else talked about, uh, you know, he's much younger than I, but he was talking about retirement. So when he came to me, you know what is my uh, prayer and dream? I want to really set a good example of an aging Christian at Forest. You know, I'm a, one of the oldest people in this church. And I want to show you it is a great blessing and privilege to serve God. So I have my retirement goal. You know what is my retirement goal? Serving God free, not paid by the church. That is my, you know, my goal. Maybe not as a lead pastor, some, some, something else. You know, but I want to serve God, not pay. That is my retirement goal. With that, you know what your retirement goal should be? If you want to be spiritually grow, right now, you have to work to take care of your family, 
So you're part-time workers in the church. When you retire, you should be full-time workers in the ministry. That should be your you know, vision. Amen? Amen? Oh, yeah. This is where we are. Forest, yeah. Amen? <laughs> Goal of every Christian for retirement. When you have a financial freedom, you serve God more than now. Amen? Amen. I heard you. So I'm going to keep you accountable to that. You know, in this story, the last thing that I want to tell you is this. God basically gave grace for David, uh, the strength to make it right. So David finally becoming king and making everything right. And look at the special verse 30. When David took the crown from the, the enemy king's head, it weighed a talent of gold. Definitely, that's a hyperbole because a talent of gold is a 75 pounds. Can you imagine you wearing something 75 pounds on your head? But I think it's a beautiful, wonderful sort of a metaphor. Glory that God will bestow upon us is something outweigh everything that we work for. This is 70 pounds. You know, a heavy crown symbolizes the weight of God's grace and glory God is preparing for us. You know, Second Peter, um, Second Corinthians 4.17, Paul said this, Our uh, light and temporary troubles are achieving, uh, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. You know, a few years ago, I, I shared uh, C.S. Lewis' famous sermon, The Weight of Glory, which is based on this passage. Glory and grace that God prepared for us is outweighing everything in this world. Amen? David is getting the privilege and, uh, you know, I, I mean, possession and everything that he didn't deserve. I think that's a picture of us. And again, Paul said in the first Corinthians chapter 3, Paul said this. So then no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours. Whether Paul, Apostle, I mean Apollo or Cephas or world of life or death or present or future, all are yours. Twice, Paul said, All are yours. All is ours because you are of Christ and Christ is of God. You know, in Christ we have a position. A position, possession, and privilege of God better than anything and anyone in this universe. By God's grace, we are richer than all the billionaires. We are more powerful than all the presidents and kings. We are more celebrated than any celebrities in this world because we are children of God and heirs with Christ. Hallelujah. Future, book of Revelation said, we all wear crown before God that we didn't deserve. And that we will throw our crown before the throne of God to praise God. Our future in Christ is brighter and stronger than ever. Are you excited about your future? Are you really grateful? The strength that God's grace gives us so that we can not just recover, but actually rededicate our life every day. Let's pray.